I just want to make two observations. One, I've been coming here a lot to preach. And this is the latest I've ever gotten up. And two, this is my first time preaching with your pastor here. I'm not connecting those dots. <laughs> if you have your Bibles, please meet me in Psalm 13. I give honor to the man of God, the pastor, the founder of this house. Help me just give God praise for a pastor, Dr. Conway Edwards. We are so, so, so grateful to God for him, his wife Jada, their lovely family, and to the rest of the pastoral team here. Psalm chapter 13, the guy who wrote this, his name is David. We have been in a series that we started last week called Exiles. It's a very biblical term. Uh, the idea of exiles is the fact that we are just passing through. This world is not our home. Hebrews says, it is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. I don't care how much kale salads you eat. <laughs> You're going to die. I, I'm, I'm going to be very dead one day. And if I die before my wife, she has very clear instructions on what to do and what not to do with the life insurance policy. <laughs> She'll cry a little bit, but she knows not to spend it on the next dude. I will come up out this bad boy. That ain't... I ain't taking care of him, it's for you. And them little tax write-offs we made together, that's who, who that is for. In, in my line of work, I've done all kinds of funerals. Nothing keeps you more in touch with your mortality than funerals. I've seen a lot of crazy stuff. I don't have time to get into all of it, but one of the first funerals I ever did was for a quadriplegic in our church, a guy by the name of Malcolm, and dearly beloved, about 500 people came out, and uh, it was one of my first funerals ever, and the, the senior pastor at the church was just like, hey man, we, I, I, I need you to do the releasing of the dove ceremony. I have no idea what that is that I'm being asked for. I'm a rookie, fresh out of seminary. He wants me to release the doves, don't know what that is, uh, but I'm going to trust the Spirit of God to give it to me. And so I just say in front of these people, this dove represents Malcolm's spirit, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. I'm like, thank you, Holy Ghost. That was amazing. Until it came time to release the dove, and the dove is in a brown paper bag. And they've poked two holes in it for this precious dove. They've written in crayon, dove, true story. And we take the dove out the brown paper bag and he's fluttering above our heads. We're ducking and all of a sudden, I promise you this is true, a hawk jumped on its back and ate it. And I said that was Malcolm's spirit. <laughs> we are exiles. We are passing through. And all the crazy stuff I've seen at a funeral, I've never seen a U-Haul truck at a cemetery. Naked we came into this world. Louis ain't going with us. Gucci ain't going with us. Naked we came into this world. Naked we shall return. We learned that there are five principles of exiles. And by the way, it wasn't an amazing word last week. I Never thought I'd see a slot machine on the stage in the house of the Lord. Y'all creative here. I love every bit of it. But one of the principles is if we're going to pass through this life as good stewards, if we're going to be in Babylon but not of Babylon, our personal relationship with God is not an elective, it's core curriculum. 
And as we pass through, we, we will experience crisis. So I want to talk for just a few moments about exiles in crisis. Psalm chapter 13, David is in crisis. He says, how long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? How, how long will you, make note of this word, hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? He must be a Cowboys fan. I'm sorry. I'm just sorry about that. Um, come on now. Come on. Come back with me. Verse 3. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Make note of this phrase, light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But, but, contrast, verse 5, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. In Psalm 13, David is in crisis. We use that word crisis a lot, don't we? But what exactly does it mean to be in crisis production? People, work with me. I'm skimming. I'm leaving a whole lot of stuff out, but just work with me. We have to understand what this word crisis means because it frames all of Psalm 13. What does it mean to be in crisis? Look at it with me. If I were to define a crisis, I'd define it this way. Look at the screen. A crisis occurs when the events of life leave us with far more questions than we have answers. You know you are in a crisis when your question to answer ratio is through the roof. You know that you are in a crisis when you, have, when you have far more questions than you have answers. I've got a former colleague of mine, I remember sitting in a meeting with him and he was bawling his eyes out. His, he and his wife, um, they were expecting the birth of their, of their child any day now and they, they went to what they thought was a routine visit with the doctor and only to discover that the doctor drops the bomb on them, tells them that your child is going to be born with special needs. Of course, they're going to love this child, but their, their world is rocked. And he says, we just went to a little park across the street from the office, and we sat there in that park and just kind of held each other and verbally processed and asked a whole lot of questions and just kind of saying out loud, our lives are forever changed. They were in a situation where they had way more questions than they had answers. Some of you, you know what it's like to have a kid out in the far country, you weren't the perfect parent, but you did the absolute best you could. And now here you are watching them make unfortunate choices and decisions with their lives. And you're praying and you're seeking God, but you are in crisis. You have far too many questions about that child than, than what you have answers. Others of you, you just received a, 
a devastating doctor's report. You thought it was just a routine physical and all of a sudden there is a serious life-threatening diagnosis that's looming over your heads. I'm thinking right now, one of my best friends, we've been in a small group together for almost 30 years. We get together annually now. He just got diagnosed with ALS, also known as Lou Gehrig's syndrome. And man, we got way more questions than we have answers. That's a crisis. Others of you, your marriage is in crisis. You know about the affair and it feels as if you just got winded in your spirit or your soul and all of a sudden what you thought was a secure foundation, the the ground is shifting beneath your feet and there is a sense in which, man, to quote that great theologian, DMX, I'm about to lose my mind up in here, up in here, I'm, I'm in a crisis. I don't wish crises on you. You don't have to pray for them. It's just a part of the terrain in life. And the thing you need to understand about problems is they never come by themselves. They always come to my house dragging their aunties, their uncles, Pookie and them, their cousins, and they just have a nice little family reunion. We all know what it's like to be in seasons of crisis. Now hear me, you don't have to spend a day in seminary to figure this out. Just read the text. And one of the things we understand, just from a cursory, plain reading of the text, is David is in crisis. You know how many questions he raises? I mean, four times he goes, how long, how long, how long, how long? It almost sounds like what we as kids on road trips back in the 80s would do. When are we going to get there? How long? I know road trips have changed these days. They can just look at the screen in front of them or talk to Siri on their phone, and Siri will tell them how long. These kids today are so soft. (laughs) But over and over and over again, David says, how long, how long, how long, how long? He's clearly in crisis. And here's what I want you to understand. David is showing and exemplifying some, some mental fatigue. And he shows us the problem with crises, the problem with suffering isn't the exact nature of the suffering, it's the psychological fatigue in not knowing how long the situation will last. Ever been there? Like, if you could tell me how long I'm gonna deal with cancer, that's a whole lot better than just dealing with cancer. So I... I'm in North Dallas, so I might as well confess my sins to you. I joined the Peloton cult. <laughs> I, I worship at the Temple of Peloton. <laughs> and I remember the, the day it was delivered to our house, I was so excited, man. They had it set up in a room in our house upstairs. Got a nice, wonderful TV in there. And I, I, I'm, I'm like, I'm going all in, going for it right now. I t- turned this thing on, decided I'm going to do interval training. I have no idea what an interval is. <laughs> no idea. It's my first rodeo. And so I, I, I decided, look, I, I'm just going to mute the sister girl trainer on here, and I'm going to put the TV uh, on, 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 you know, turn the volume up. And um, I, I discovered as I'm going through the class, I can look to my lower left. It'll show you how fast you should be going. Lower right will show you the resistance. And, but interval training is, I quickly found out, it's bursts of speed. So I'm just kind of going along, and all of a sudden this thing says 100 to 110 miles an hour. So I'm dying. And to make matters worse, I got her on mute, so I don't know how long. And this was unmanageable to me. 
It's, it's one thing to go through the burst of speed. It's another thing to not know how long. So I quickly muted the television and unmuted her because I need you to tell me how long. Wouldn't it be great if God showed up and said, hey, Brian, for the next 153 days, your life is going to be hell. But it's just 153 days. Just. That's better than my life being pure hell. David is showing us the problem with crisis is not so much the crisis, it's the mental fatigue in not knowing how long. Then he goes on to say, how long will you turn your face from me? This is what theologians call an anthropomorphic kind of reference to God. In John 4, Jesus says uh, that, that, that God is spirit. And so when we talk about the face of God, it's an anthropomorphism. We are, we are attaching and attributing human characteristics to the God who is spirit. And in the Bible, face equals presence. That's why the great benediction and blessing of number six, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. It's the idea of, of the presence and the favor of God, the turning of the face. It is the idea of God's favor and, and presence and blessings. But notice what David says, how long will you turn your face away from me? In other words, David is not just showing kind of the mental fatigue, but, but the spiritual kind of fatigue and abandonment he feels in the crisis. He's like, God, not only am I in the crisis and going through what I'm going through, God, it seems as if you're nowhere to be found. Ever been there? Y'all so spiritual. <laughs> Ever had the spiritual honesty to say what Jesus said on the cross, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? It feels as if in my most vulnerable and critical moment, God, you have packed your bags and you have left me. I hope you're getting the sense this ain't no safe King James Version, prim and proper kind of prayer. Then he goes, look at the text, consider and answer me. The original language of our text is Hebrew, and Hebrew, consider and answer is what we would call imperatives. And the idea of an imperative is simply a demand. And when you, when you make a demand, there is a heightened sense of urgency. I submit to you, learn to read your Bible, not just in its historical, literal, grammatical context. Learn to read it in its emotional context. I suggest to you, David is not saying, hey, could you consider and answer me? It's a demand. I think David is real enough in his relationship with God that it's not beyond the pale to suggest he probably raises his voice, consider and answer me. I need answers. And then he says, light up my eyes. You know what theologians say about that phrase, light up my eyes? They say it's actually, in today's speak, an admission of depression. David says, I'm in this crisis. I got way more questions than I've got answers. I'm mentally fatigued. I'm emotionally frustrated. I'm depressed. 
Ever been there? If I can just be honest with you, I hope this is a safe place, don't judge me. I used to hear people say I'm depressed and I used to think they're soft. Until it happened to me. I've always prided myself on, yeah, just put it on my shoulders. I got big shoulders. You can just put more and more and more and more. And then you realize, oh, golly, I'm, I'm not the Messiah. And I remember I was in one of those seasons. It was one thing after another, after another, after another, after another. And then about a week goes by, and I'm like, it's 11 o'clock in the morning. I'll never forget this. I'm sitting out on my stoop on our home there in, in California, and I'm going, I'm tired. Like, I want to get in the bed, go to sleep tired. A few more days of that goes by, and all of a sudden I'm on Google, and I've diagnosed myself with terminal cancer. <laughs> Don't act like I'm the only one who's ever done that. <laughs> you know, chocolate people, we won't go to the doctor, but we will go to Google. That's a whole nother sermon for a whole nother time. Finally, I went to the doctor because I get in the bed at night, God, I can't wait to go to sleep, and all of a sudden, my heart starts racing. And the doctor's asking me questions, and what's going on in your life? And I'm going, well, I got this going on, and that going on, and that going on, and that going on. And after about the seventh thing, you ever done this? Just kind of listening to yourself talk? And you go, wow, I'm going through a lot. I think that's David. Light up my eyes. How am I going to make it through a crisis? David shows us the first thing you have to do is you have to bring your feelings to God. This ain't no theologically sophisticated prayer. It is raw and it is emotionally real. Now, here's our problem. And again, the thing I love about One Community Church, we're a welcoming church, everybody's welcome here. And I'm just so amazed every time I come at the growing diversity that's happening here and wonderful. But, but many of us in this room came up in households where mama wasn't really concerned about how you felt. Like when mama told me to tie my shoes, she did not say, how do you feel about that? Right. <laughs> <laughs> These new parents today, man, God bless y'all, man. Y'all negotiate with two-year-olds about tying their shoes. And if you tie your shoes, I'll take you to Chick-fil-A and we'll, we'll get this. And it'll be my pleasure. God bless y'all, man. I didn't grow up in that house. There was no negotiations. There was no Chick-fil-A. It was get me a switch. Now, if I was preaching this in California, I couldn't say that in California, but I'm in Texas. I'm in Texas. I can, I can say that in Texas. And so, sometimes we'd be sitting in the house and mom would tell me something to do, and I'd be ticked off. But you don't express that to mama. You don't say to mama, consider and answer me. No. I didn't grow up. I wasn't blessed 
to grow up in that house. So when mama would do something I didn't like, I'd go to the other side of the house where my room was on the opposite side of the room, and I'd just whisper, I hate her, I hate her, I hate her. And it's at that moment, mama's supernatural hearing would kick in way on the other side of the house, and she would say, what did you say? And I would lie, oh, nothing, mama, I love you. I'm just saying how much I adore you right now. Now, here's the problem. What happens when we start walking with God, we take that paradigm to God. Some of y'all are having a real hard time about David's rawness and realness because you grew up in homes where that was not allowed. But God ain't your mama. God is not even your daddy. God is what we call omniscient, which means he knows how you feel whether or not you say it. I, I want to show you something. Go ahead and put this graphic on the screen. It's, it, it's something I walk my church through a couple times a year. It's the communication pyramid. I, if you get nothing else I say, I just want you to kind of hang out here for a while. It's... It's five levels of communication, and this tool will revolutionize uh, your relationships because it gives you a good grid and gauge on how healthy your marriage is, how healthy your friendships are. Uh, five levels of communication. The most surface level up top is cliche. Good morning, good morning, how are you? You've communicated, but you really haven't said anything. And we're real good at that down south, aren't we? We're just so nice, just so nice. Second and third levels are where most guys hang out. It's what I call sports center talk. Level two is facts. Uh, who won the game? How many points did Steph Curry uh, have? Uh, level three, it's opinions. It's sharing what you think. Will the Cowboys make it to the playoffs? Of course they won't. Everybody understands that. So it's levels two and level three. Uh, levels four and five. Come on, stay with me, somebody. Levels four and five are the deepest levels of communication. Level four is emotive. It's sharing how I feel. Level five, it's transparency. It's sharing who you are. Level five is hard to quantify. You ever had a cup of coffee with somebody or left hanging out with somebody and something in you goes, I experienced them? What you're really saying is that we had level five communication. Now here's the problem when we read the Psalms. Psalms like Psalm 13 or, or let's go Psalm 55 when David in Psalm 55 says, hey God, send my enemies to hell. We go, whoa, right? Whoa, like that is not a healthy theology of how to deal with people who've wronged you. Our problem is we're coming at that psalm with level two facts, and David trusts God enough not to stop at level two, but he goes to level four. David ain't concerned with dotting all his the theological I's or crossing all his theological T's. He's saying, God, this is how I feel. She getting on my nerves. Do something. Isn't it interesting? I think most of us in our prayer lives, if we were to be, if we were to be honest, God only gets to level two with us. Hey, God, I need some money for this business. Hey, God, my car done broke down. I need some new tires. And, and I just imagine... Isn't it interesting? We're, we're telling the all-knowing God facts. I just imagine God looking at the Holy Spirit going, hey, did you know they needed new tires for their car? 
God's word to someone is, I can handle your feelings. I know you're frustrated. You're in the crisis. I know it. When are you going to get honest enough with me to tell me you're angry with me? Say it again. Maybe that would keep us from deconstructing. God, I'm upset for going to get through the crisis. There has to be a moment where we are honest enough with ourselves, honest enough with God to say, God, this is what I'm feeling, but praise God, Psalm 13 doesn't stop in verse 4 because then in verse 5, the whole thing turns on a dime. It's as if two different people are talking, but it's really the same. David has an epiphany. He says, but... I, 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 I feel abandoned, but I feel frustrated, but I feel psychologically fatigued, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. In other words, if I'm going to get through the crisis, I don't ignore my feelings, but I don't give my feelings control of my faith. Hear me, don't miss this. Your feelings are like your two-year-old child. We put them in the car seat and we strap them in. We interact with them. We don't put them in the trunk and ignore them. But we don't give them the keys to the car. Feelings make wonderful passengers horrible drivers. Are you with me on this? What you feel is what you feel. Don't stick it in the trunk. But don't let it drive the car of your faith. It's there. Acknowledge it. Interact with it. Cry over it. But at some point, you have to become your your favorite podcast preacher, where you preach to your feelings the facts about who God is, and you call your feelings to get in alignment with the facts of your faith. So here's David. Man, I'm frustrated. I'm down. I'm in this crisis. I'm, I'm, I'm just, God, I can't believe you've left me out here. And then it's almost like he snaps to himself, but I have trusted in your, underline this phrase, in your steadfast, your steadfast love, your steadfast love. I'm a little bit upset with your pastor because I don't really have time to do this justice, but here's what I want you to understand. Steadfast love in the English is one word in the Hebrew, it's the Hebrew word hased. This is the most important word in the whole Old Testament. It's used 250 times. 127 of those times, over half of its usages, it's in the Psalms. Your whole faith rests on hased. What does hased mean? Look at it with me on the screen. Here it is. Hased is this. When the person whom I have the right to expect nothing from gives me everything. 
What is hesed? Hesed means the person whom I have the right to expect nothing from. You've given me everything. If you haven't caught on now, the New Testament word for hesed is grace. I love it. This is all over the Bible. Just Exodus chapter 34. Here is God. He's upset with his people. He's just delivered them from Egypt. They've walked through the Red Sea, the Red Sea on dry ground, which means their, their Jordans get, didn't get messed up. They've, they've been carried through this thing. And what do these jokers do? Right on the other side, they fashion a golden calf. They commit idolatry. Instead of giving praise to God, they, they commit idolatry. God says, that's it. I'm going to do a hard reset, wipe them all off, and, and just kind of start over with you, Moses. Moses says, God, you can't do that. God says, okay, Moses, and look at what he says. Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in, here it is, Hased, steadfast love and faithfulness keeping, here it is again, Hased, steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. God is saying, my people have no right to expect anything. They're idolaters, but I'm going to be with them and give them everything. Or consider Hosea. God looks over the balcony of heaven and says, my people are cheating on me. They're whoring after other gods. I'm not going to give up on them. Hosea, you marry this prostitute named Gomer. In chapter 3, when she cheats on you, don't divorce her because I don't divorce my people. She has no right to expect anything from you, but I need you to do to her what I do to my people every day. Give her everything. She said... It's in the New Testament, the the prodigal son, the youngest son says, give me my share of the inheritance now. He goes off to a far country. He wasted on riotous living. He comes back, but he knows I can't come back as a son. I'll come back as a hired servant. So he meets his father and he says, dad, I'm coming back as a hired servant. His dad says, no, you're not. You're my son. Kill the fattened calf. Put a rope on him. Put a ring on his finger. Get the DJ. Cue the Cupid shuffle. We're partying all night. You have no right to expect anything, but I'm giving you everything. Friends, it's the cross. Just this week, we lived in sin and rebellion against God. We worshiped our idols of money, status, and success. We committed acts of immorality. We gossiped. We slandered. God has the right to turn his back on us, and yet we're here today, not because of the letters behind our name, not because we got it right all the time. We are here today because morning by morning, new mercies we see. Great is your faithfulness. So David teaches us, when you're in a crisis, we tend to get short-term amnesia. We act as if God ain't good. David says, let me, let me stop. I'm upset with God, but I'm sitting on a throne. I was a shepherd boy tending sheep. My own father wouldn't even trust me to be a contestant. God had to come get me. Everything I have is because of the goodness of God, and I'm complaining about three months of my life. No, I'm here because of God's goodness. Oh, we're spoiled brats in the kingdom. We go through one stretch, and we question the goodness of God. 
and you 58 years old and he's been good all 58 years. We're playing with house money. If he never does another thing, he's done enough because of the cross. I'm going to my seat. I'm in the crisis. I bring my feelings. I remember the facts. But finally, I respond in faith. What does that mean? David says, I will rejoice. I will sing. Uh-oh, the crisis ain't over. He, he ain't waiting until he gets to the other side of the crisis. He's in it. And he's going to praise God on layaway because he knows he's good for it. I ain't going to stay in bed mad at God. I'm getting my hind parts to the house of the Lord. I'm going to rejoice and sing and hear me. Some of the most rebellious things you can ever do is to be in a crisis and make up in your mind to stop the pity party. In the middle of the crisis, I'm going to rejoice and sing, which are acts of defiant rebellion. When you rejoice and sing, when you should have an attitude, you are shaking your fists at the gates of hell, sin, and Satan, and you are saying, Satan, you will not have my joy. God is good. Even when he doesn't feel good, I'm going to give him praise, honor, and glory. Oh, 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 okay, okay, Pastor. So you're telling me I gotta force myself to rejoice? I gotta force myself to sing? No. The, musicians, you understand that there's a term called sympathetic resonation. Sympathetic resonation says if you go to tune an instrument like a guitar and you get a C tuning fork, and you hold that C tuning fork next to a string on the guitar that's already been tuned to C. Because they are in tune with each other, that string that's tuned to C will automatically, in the presence of the C tuning fork, start to vibrate. David says, when I'm in the presence of God's C tuning fork of said." When I allow my mind to marinate on his goodness. Come on now. We, we, we used to sing it in our churches growing up, didn't we? When I think of the goodness of Jesus and all that he's done for me, my soul cries out. Hallelujah. Thank God for blessing me. My, my grandmama used to say, if you'll start thinking, you'll start thanking See, that's why I don't understand when people say, the worship wasn't that good today. As if worship, the quality of worship depended on the quality of musicianship. Worship is all about the quality, not of the musician, but of God. And when your heart has been soaking in his goodness, you don't need nobody to rile you into singing. You enter into his courts with thanksgiving. You enter into his gates with praise. You, 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 you bring your own worship. Even in the middle of the crisis, 
We're all standing. We're all standing. Sometimes we hear the word of God and we we understand that the word does not return void. But sometimes it's just not where, where we're at. And so we store it away. We go back and get that word at another date, at another time. But sometimes we hear the word of God and it's what we would call a right now word. It's right where I'm at. If you're here today and you find yourself in a crisis, you are in a season, in a situation, a circumstance where you have way more questions than you have answers, we want to pray for you. Would you meet me here at the altar? If that's you, would you just slip out right where you're at? Pastor, I'm in a season, I'm in a situation, I'm in a circumstance. I've got way more questions than I have answers. We're not going to pass the mic. We're not going to put you on blast. We don't need to know all the X's and O's. We're talking to the all-knowing God who already knows. We're going to pray for you. I, I want the pastor of this house, Pastor Conway, to come and just shepherd your people in this moment. But if that's you, would you just come? Would you just come? I'm, I'm in a crisis. Could be a crisis in your marriage. Could be a crisis with your kids. It could be a financial crisis. You, you might be in a vocational crisis. Uh, God, I just, I just don't understand. There's some things. That I'm not, you might be in a health crisis, whatever it may be. We want to pray for you. We want to encourage you. We want to, to cry out to God and to see that you get the strength that you need to make it through this season. Come on, Pastor Conway, would you pray over and would you bless your people? If you're in the audience, if you're online, everything these people down here are going through, many of you have been through it and you've come out on the other side. And God was good in it. And he's good now that you've gone through it. So will you give your brothers and sisters who have more questions than answers right now, will you give them a round of applause for their vulnerability and for their transparency? <laughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you for every person at the altar, at every campus, of every person at home on their knees in front of the television. God, we just ask right now in the name of Jesus that you will walk with them through the valley. We ask that you will hold their hands through the valley. We ask that you will come alongside them and hug them through the valley and remind them that you are there with them. Help them to feel, sense your presence. God, you might not take them out today or tomorrow, but you have joined them in the valley. I pray that nobody here will feel alone. I pray that the body of Christ will, will wrap their arms around them, but more importantly, that the spirit of the living God will fall afresh on them right now. I pray against the plans of the enemy. He wants to discourage them, allow them to question their faith, allow them to throw in the towel and say, how could a good God allow this? I pray that their feelings will not drive their theology. And so, God, I ask right now that you'll strengthen their faith. I pray that you'll increase their faith so much that in the midst of the pain and the suffering, that mourning will turn into joy. Not that the pain has gone away. Not that the, 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 the crisis has gone away. But their God, our God, is with them. 
So God, I pray healing over every person here. I pray patience over every person here. I pray God's favor in the midst of the pain over every person here and that they will know you better than they have ever known you before simply because they went through this. God, every time you lead somebody into a, into a crisis, it's because there's a different facet of your goodness and your character that you're trying to display. Will you show us all the facet that you want us to discover? Help us to focus on that, we pray. Heal, protect, guide, rejuvenate, refresh in the midst of the pain, we pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said, come on, give your brothers and sisters a round of applause. We're proud of you. He's walking with you. <laughs>